Hey friends, thanks for tuning in to Garden Church Podcast. This is a unique series. I have some friends coming in and they're bringing what they're carrying on their heart. They're bringing passion sermons. And I'm so excited for you to listen to this series. For more information about Garden Church and how to follow the way of Jesus, how to live life to its fullest, empowered by the Holy Spirit, go to garden.church, get plugged in. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Good morning, guys. <laughs> I'm Julian and I, and our kids love you, so we feel like we are amongst family, so thank you for having us here. Um, I said to Julian during the worship time, the fourth to sixth graders, I had to check what age group they were, were standing in front of us worshiping, and I noted that many of them were taller than me, and I said to Julian, they have these kids here on purpose to keep me humble, so... <laughs> And then I was in between giants, so it's wonderful. <laughs> Hence, I'm moving this stand so that I can see you all above it. I feel like God is going to surprise us this morning with his presence. Um, you know, sometimes we go to church just to get that thing off our list for the week. Just like it's just something we do. It's part of our routine. We go to church and then we go home and we forget whatever happened because we're just getting on with everyday life. And I understand that. Sometimes we just get sucked into rhythms no matter how much we love the Lord. But I felt today that God wants to do something that is a bit of an interruption, uh, interruption for some for destiny, an interruption for some of the rhythms that you're building um, an interruption for some of even where you live, that this is going to be a moment where God resets us on course for destiny. And so, uh, Holy Spirit, we want to follow your leading and your voice. We love your voice. Please speak to us. We invite your power to be present to demonstrate with your hand the declaration of your word in Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna be preaching from Exodus 1 this morning, so feel free to um, flick there in your Bibles if you would like to. I'm just gonna take a second, get this water opened. I am going to read the passage. So if you don't have a Bible with you, no worries. I'm going to read it. And then um, we're going to get right into this text with four Fs. I like to say that um, everyone knows in church that alliteration carries power. And so um, I'm just kidding. Um, kind of. So um, we'll see where we go. Exodus chapter 1. Verse 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now, hundreds of years pass, and there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and 
too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard surface, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. First time God is mentioned in the book. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. There's definitely an insult buried in here. For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child. Behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away, nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Today, I want to talk a little bit about the fight for fruit. And I believe this, this kind of chapter and a half that we read, there, there is so much treasure here. Don't you love scripture? The more you read, the more you see, and the more God brings revelation, not just of who he is, but who he has made us to be. I believe these verses that we've read have so much to teach us today about what we were made for and the promises that God is making us as we submit to his plan and as we follow his leading. The first thing I want to point out from this chapter, the first F, is fear. There's two things I want to say about fear. The first thing to note about fear 
is that the enemy hates the Israelites, not just because Pharaoh doesn't like them, not just because their customs are different, but actually Pharaoh hates the Israelites because he is afraid of them. The story is full of not just, I want to enslave these people because they irritate me, because I, whatever, because they don't act like us, speak like us, look like us. There's plenty of that kind of hatred in the world. But the reality is this story pinpoints for us the root of Pharaoh's hatred of the people of Israel. And it's not just dislike, it is fear. This is key for us as the people of God to understand Because we have to understand as those who belong to Jesus and follow him, that the enemy does not hate you just because you're easy to dislike. The enemy hates you because he is afraid of you. If we understand the motivation of the enemy, we will understand the victorious position that God has put us in. See, I want to tell you, if you're a Christian, this is the fine print. The enemy doesn't like you and is going to come against you. Okay. If you haven't experienced that yet, God bless you. That's wonderful. I'm so pleased for you. Maybe you're more spiritual than I am. But I want to tell you, at least from my experience, that followers of Jesus, whilst we know the powerful presence of God will with us, there is a reality of recognizing the opposition of the enemy when we submit ourselves to the purposes of God. It happened to Jesus, it will happen to us. But the good part of the fine print is that Jesus is victorious, that Jesus is not weak, that Jesus is not scared, that Jesus is not thinking, oh no, what do I do? The mighty enemy is against us. No, no, no. Jesus is in you has already overcome. And it is because of that, that the enemy hates you because he is afraid of you. Pharaoh says of the Israelites, he's scared that they will be too mighty for the Egyptians. I want you to understand, believer in Jesus, you are because of Christ in you, too mighty for the enemy. The enemy will come at you with all sorts of lies to make you think that you are so small, so helpless, just this tiny little Christian that all the demons of hell are gonna come and get you. The enemy spins a tall tale, but the reality is that everything he's doing is the same as a bully who is actually afraid of the person he's going after. Lots of noise. Lots of drama, but in reality, he is terrified. Not because you, in and of yourself, are particularly scary to the enemy, but because he sees. You joined with Jesus. That's what happens when you become a Christian. It's not just that you try to follow a lifestyle or a wonderful, profound ethic or a a kind of religious ritual. But the reality is when you say yes to the life of Jesus, the life of Jesus now gets joined to your life. So you are inseparable from him, which means when the enemy sees you, he sees Jesus and of Jesus, Jesus, he is terrified. 
For those of us who face opposition, a guarantee for the Christian, for those of us who will have moments of battle, it is so key for us to understand this is not happening simply because I am easy to hate. This is happening because the enemy is terrified and rather than step back, I should lean into what God is calling me because as it turns out, this very opposition is proof that I am in the strongest position. If we don't understand his motivation, we will misunderstand the solution. We will think I need to retreat Oh yeah, oh actually I'm not armed with enough strength for this. Oh yeah, this is proof that I didn't get my ducks of faith in a row before I stepped out in this. Oh yeah, this is proof that I am small. Actually, as it turns out, that group over there that told me that I'm a complete crazy person for believing God, turns out they're right, right? You'll be going through all of that in your head in the moment of opposition, but let this chapter teach you in the moment of opposition, we must say this is proof that the enemy is frightened of Christ in me, the hope of glory. We will posture ourselves differently if we understand his motivations. First part of fear that this chapter can teach us. But the second thing about fear that I want to note is really the question, who do you fear? See, the profound moment of this chapter, the high point of chapter one, is the first time God is mentioned. That is intentional. When you read the scriptures, the introductory moment of God being mentioned is really important. It's intentional that God gets mentioned in the context of these midwives who feared him. Fear in this context isn't just I'm scared of, but rather I have reverence for, rather an understanding this opinion, this person's opinion trumps anyone else's opinion for me. And in this story, there is this moment where the midwives stand in defiance of Pharaoh because there is an opinion that they honor more than even Pharaoh's. What we should read in that moment isn't just, wow, they were kind of brave, but this question should be provoked in us, who do I fear? Because who you fear will dictate the destiny that you walk in. Make no mistake, the opinion that is the most important opinion to you will be the opinion that drives your life. You can say, I'm a believer. You can say, I'm a Christian. You can be one. But if you are more afraid of what your friends think than what Jesus says, you will be driven in your life based on the opinions of your friends rather than the call of Jesus. You can say, I love Jesus. You can be a Christian. This is not a question of salvation right now. You can have your life joined to Jesus. But if his opinion is not the thing that is most on your, I fear his voice in the reverence sense, but rather your bank balance dictates to you what you should fear. If you fear money or the lack of money, you will be driven by your bank balance, not the voice of Jesus. Who or what do you fear? What you fear, you serve. 
What you serve, you worship. What you worship, you give ownership to. It's why God invites us to fear Him, to revere Him, to worship Him alone, because belonging to Jesus is the only belonging that will not kill you. Any other ownership will destroy you. You fear money or the lack of it, you will begin to serve the purposes of money, you will begin to worship having money and money and the idolatry of that will begin having ownership over you and slowly but surely your destiny will be destroyed as you worship your finances. Anything that takes the place of the voice of Jesus in a place of reverence will own us to the point of derailing destiny. What do you fear? It is wild. These women live in defiance of an almighty king because there is a voice that they will not ignore even when a king is bringing challenge to them. I think of a moment in 1 Samuel 17 where David, he's a young kid really, a teenager, goes to a battlefield that he has not been invited to because he's too insignificant to become a soldier. And he goes and he stands and he watches Israel and the Philistines. Uh, the 1 Samuel 17 is a funny chapter. You should read it because it talks about how they were fighting. But when it describes what they were doing, there's no fighting involved. They would get their ranks all together. They'd hurl insults and then they'd go back home. <laughs> Sometimes as Christians, we play the part of a battlefield rather than actually engaging in what God has called us to because we'd prefer the look, the veneer of I'm engaged with no cost, which is what 1 Samuel 17 is doing. The Israelites had no cost. They were fighting. And yet David, this young kid, he walks in, he watches this farce which is all an act rather than a reality. But there's a voice <laughs> that he fears more than Goliath's voice, this giant yelling insults. There is one he lives in fear of beyond the giant in front of him. And he says, who is this that defies the Lord? And he's looking around. He can't believe what he's seeing. And he says, I'll fight him. They're like, uh, go on, <laughs> go home. You don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, no, seriously, I'm made for this moment. Why? Because there is one who he fears beyond the giant. There is defiance in him of the giant that stands before him. I felt as just during worship, the Lord say to me, he wants to impart to us today, some of us in this room, a defiance against giants, that we would be people who are restored to the fear of the Lord in such a way that we would stand before giants who hurl insults at us, that threaten to crush us, and yet we would hear 
the voice of the Lord and because we are so overcome by the fear of the Lord, we will defy the giants before us because there is one opinion that leads us. Who do you fear? Who you fear will define your life. Father, we ask you that you would bring to us a beautiful fear of the Lord today. Not that we would live scared of you, but that we would so revere you that we would defy giants and pharaohs as we serve the voice of the Lord. The second F that I want to point us to is fruit. First is fear, second is fruit. See, the interesting thing about what happens in this story is that no one takes notice of the Israelites for their existence until they are fruitful. Fruitfulness is the issue, not simply existence. No one's complaining about the Israelites. It takes a while until they realize, wait, 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 these guys are really fruitful. These guys are multiplying everywhere. That's the issue, right? You read chapter one, there's no other issue. It's their fruitfulness. I wanna say to us as believers, God did not make you simply to exist. He made you to be fruitful. There is something of a call of God on each and every person who belongs to Jesus to multiply that which he has put inside of us into future generations. And the thing that defines a fruit from being a vegetable is that it has multiplying seed in it to keep going. Once it comes out of you and multiplies in your community, the promise of God in fruit is that it will keep snowballing because that seed will continue to bear fruit wherever it goes. The point is here that the enemy takes notice because of fruitfulness that shouldn't frighten us, but it should alert us to a purpose that God has for us. I wanna say to you, you guys attending garden week in, week out does not make you a Christian. It does not make you fruitful. What actually makes you someone who follows Jesus is allowing the life of Jesus to unite with yours so that suddenly you get swallowed up in His life as you surrender to the reality of a cross and resurrection. But the reality of following Jesus then means that there is supernatural potential in you to multiply what He is doing in you wherever you go. So it should be the case that if you are living to the fullness of your potential in Christ, that God and church will be impacted by your presence here because there is something in you that will grow into fruit in this house that will then multiply in this house. It won't be that you just warm a seat on a Sunday. It will be that you see the fruit of your life even in this community. That's the point of you having the job that you have. Some of us are like, what? (laughs) There is purpose in your workplace no matter how challenging, no matter how difficult, if we do not understand the purpose that we were made for in order to bear fruit, then we will be hopeless in the places of our work if they are challenging. But if we understand that scripture is inviting to rec- us to recognize that there is purposes of God in me, in seed form, that He's inviting me to grow into fruit so that whatever context I am in will be impacted by what's in me to the point of growing it out of me, to the point of impacting the atmosphere around me, then we will recognize that your depressed workplace is just a beautiful opportunity for you to grow the supernatural fruit 
fruit of joy from your life so that it is tangible and tasteable in your community at work. And what will happen is that supernatural fruit has seed in it so that it will become something that multiplies in your workplace. And sure enough, within a few months, within a few years, the whole atmosphere of your workplace will have changed into a joy-filled space. Why? Because you carry the seed for fruit and it has the potential to multiply wherever it goes. The enemy isn't worried about us when we just see ourselves as seat warmers. The enemy pays attention when we recognize our potential to bear fruit. And I know Julian and I will have said this multiple times here, but it bears repeating. Fruit is something that people can pick and taste. When John 15, Jesus says to his disciples, I have chosen you and appointed you to bear much fruit, a promise to his disciples and to disciples through the generations, including to us. The point of fruit is that we can't say, oh, it's inside me deep, deep down. If no one can pick it and taste it, it is not fruit. You might say, I carry the peace of God. That sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? I carry peace. Tell me, how am I to recognize that? Because if I cannot pick the apple, taste the apple, (laughs) the apple tree cannot be recognized apart from its fruit actually happening. If not, it is forever in potential form never in fruit form. Jesus didn't say, I have chosen you and appointed you for much potential. That's what many of us mean when we say I carry peace. What we mean is I carry the potential for peace because my life is united with Jesus, but don't make me feel anxious because then all you'll get is anxiety and fear overflowing from me. Then you don't carry peace. You carry the fruit of anxiety. If people around you can pick and taste anxiety, you can say you are a peace tree, you are not. Your fruit proves what's happening. And so there is this reality that sometimes it's like we're waiting for someone else to be the grown up. Don't you think David was thinking that in 1 Samuel? He's like, anyone? These guys look really impressive. Surely one of them will figure out what's going on. In the end, he realizes, nah, turns out I'm the grown-up. Any parents in this room, Julian and I have a seven and a six-year-old, any parents in the room have a kid and you suddenly realize, I'm the grown-up in the room. (laughs) It's like a terrifying moment that you suddenly realize it. Sometimes we're looking around our workplaces that are challenging and we're looking around for someone else to resolve it. And yet you have been chosen and appointed to bear fruit. You, you don't need to wait for another grown up to stand up and do whatever you wish would be done. The reality is every single believer in Jesus has been chosen and appointed to bear the fruit that is needed in each context. Your workplace needs joy. Guess what? You have the seed of joy. Allow Holy Spirit 
to grow in you supernatural joy, a joy that the world cannot produce so that it will bear fruit, i.e. that piece of fruit will bear other fruit, will bear other fruit within your workplace. You don't need to wait for someone else to be the solution. You carry the solution, just bear the fruit of it. Fruitfulness. One more thing on fruitfulness and then we'll move on. John 15, as I mentioned, Jesus says, I have appointed you, chosen you to bear fruit. That's the purpose of intimacy with him. Do you know the thing about the vine, which is in John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. The whole analogy of fruitfulness is wrapped up in being a fruitful vine. The thing about a vine is that the vine tree is useless for anything other than its fruit. If you read Ezekiel 15, you see a chapter where, where God talks about this. And if you do research, it's true. The, the wood of the vine is useless. It's useless for building furniture. It's, it, it's not strong enough. It's useless for burning. It burns too quickly. So it's not used for fuel and it's not used for furniture or anything else that you might use as a building tool. The only use of a vine is its fruit. Many of us Christians, we don't want to bear fruit, but we'd rather build monuments of beautiful things to show our, showcase our glory. <laughs> but the tree that you are made of cannot do anything other than bear fruit. That is its value. I want to encourage us, even as church communities, not to run around trying to find an alternate use for the vine because fruit is too costly. But to submit ourselves, surrender ourselves to the reality of the nature of God in us and be a people who don't try to use the wood for fuel, it will fail. But allow fruit to grow from us for the nourishing of all around us. Fear fruit females, stick with me. I promise this is not a monologue on feminism. Now that I've said that word, let me just say, I'm not a feminist, though I believe in equality between men and women. Feminism is a, is a way of thought that puts women at the center of the story. Therefore, I am not a feminist because Jesus is at the center of the story and no one, man or woman, gets to displace him from his central place in this story. And that is why I'm not a feminist or any other kind of ideology that you want to put out there. I am a woman wholeheartedly surrendered to the kingdom of Jesus being established. He alone uh, deserves center stage. Okay, having said that, females, stick with me. It's a fascinating couple of chapters. If you read chapter one again and into chapter two, you will be, if you're looking for women, you will be surprised to see just how many women are noted in this story for doing something faith-filled and just how few men. Now this isn't saying, stick with me, I promise we're going somewhere. This isn't saying that men are bad, women are good. 
This is just noticing something that you should never allow anyone to underestimate you when your life is joined with Jesus. Because you might be the shortest person in the room. Small children might beat you in the height department. And yet if Jesus calls you, you are not small. You are simply one joined to the powerful, almighty God and anything is possible. It's fascinating in this story that Pharaoh so underestimates women that he is only interested in killing the boys. It's not that he's thinking, let's kill off all the children. He's thinking the boys pose a threat, the girls do not. Isn't that fascinating? And yet when you read chapter one and chapter two, the whole of Pharaoh's plan is thwarted by multiple women. The midwives are women. He so underestimates them that he, he doesn't even think that they should be put to death. And yet they defy his edict. And then you have Moses' mom. It's interesting, his dad is mentioned, but just like because a dad is required. But he is not faith-filled. There is no part of his story that shows that he had any level of faith for what Moses' mother did. Moses' mother is the one who has the faith to hide him, who has the faith to build a basket for him, who has the faith to put him in waters. Moses' sister is the one that stands and speaks to Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter is the one who defies her father's edict by raising up a Hebrew male. Do you follow me? At every point of this story, the one that was underestimated is the one that God uses to thwart the enemy. I want to tell you whether you're a man or a woman in this room, this is not just about women, but this is the reality that it does not matter what culture thinks about you. It does not matter how tall or small you are. It does not matter what age you are. Miriam was a child in this story. It does not matter what people have said about how little you can achieve. If God has called you, you were made for greatness. Every part of this story, putting these women on display, it is not an accident, it is intentional. It is telling us that what Pharaoh thought was nothing is used by God to undermine him to the point of destroying him and his kingdom. Fear, fruit, females, last one. Futility. See, the beautiful part of all of this is that no matter how hard Pharaoh tries, they just keep multiplying. He tries different things in different stages. Let's work them hard. Let's enslave them. Let's kill their children at every juncture. What happens is not a receding, but an increasing. The fruitfulness just keeps going. Why? Well, see, there's a mandate given right at the beginning of time in the Garden of Eden 
where God speaks to Adam and Eve and he says, be fruitful and multiply. There's a promise given in Genesis for a few chapters from Genesis 12, a promise spoken over a man called Abraham that I will make your descendants to be like the stars in the sky. I will make your descendants to be like the grains of sand on the seashore. There is a promise and a mandate that is at work, that is working through generations of Israelites. See, what Pharaoh doesn't understand is that he's not just dealing with a people, he is dealing with a promise and his act against that promise will be futile. The promise will have its way. The promise will work its way out. The promise will continue to accelerate. God prom promised Abraham something. Generations before this moment, Pharaoh tries to do everything in his power to kill, kill a people. He does not understand the power of that promise, that it is consistently accelerating through generations. Pharaoh can do whatever he wants. He can try however many ways he wants. He can try to kill all the people he wants. The reality is he cannot nullify that promise. I want to say something to us as the people of God. God has made promises to you and to me. He has spoken mandates and destiny over us. Do you know what the enemy cannot do? Nullify God's promise. He can try every which way to come against you. He can try every which way to rob you of destiny, to rob you of courage, to rob you of, de uh, of purposes. I want you to understand that if we as the people of God lay hold of the promises of God, stand firm on what He has said, there is nothing and no one who can nullify the Word of God. That promise will figure out a way of coming through in your life. See, there's a promise that God makes us in the book of Romans, Romans 8. Let's look at it together. We're going to finish with this. What then shall we say? Verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, any kind of plan of the enemy? No, verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing, nothing can come against Jesus being with you in every situation. Another, we could go through another promise, Psalm 23, 
Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. What does that mean? That means no matter what the enemy tries to throw your way, no matter how many times the enemy tries to get you, the reality of that verse is that it is working its way out in your life. Nothing the enemy can do can nullify the Word of God. That means that goodness and mercy will follow you all of the days of your life. Keep picking anywhere you want in Scripture. Understand that when God promises you something, the enemy has zero authority to nullify that Word. And just as it was, with Pharaoh in Exodus chapter one will be with the enemy in your life that he can come against the promise no matter how many times he tries, that promise will be worked out. When God has spoken something over you, he is faithful to do it. Exodus chapter one and chapter two, the enemy's afraid of you. The question really is, who are you afraid of? Who do you revere? Whose opinion leads you the most? Some of us, we just need to go home and do a deep dive into that question. Whose opinion leads me? Because that will actually tell you who you worship. Exodus chapter one and chapter two, fruitfulness is your purpose. Don't just warm a seat here. Change your workplace. Bear fruit, supernatural fruit. Read Galatians 5 and 6. Allow it to ruminate in you the fruit of the Spirit. Bear fruit, multiply, make disciples. That's what you were made for. Females, whether you're a man or a woman, understand that no matter who underestimates you, it is irrelevant if God has called you. And in fact, so often... God uses those that are easy to underestimate to shame the wise. He doesn't choose people based on their strength or their wisdom or their righteousness or that we have nothing to add to the kingdom in and of our own strength because God is better. You think you're really, really clever and that's why God chose you? Spoiler alert, he's cleverer than you. He would have done it better without you. There literally is not a single calling that we are adding actual value to because of our gifts. Because he could do it better without us. I say this often, we are as helpful to God as my children are in helping me unload the dishwasher. You have got to teach yourself that. If not, you will truly believe that your strengths are why he called you, which will mean that there is pressure on you to perform rather than understanding you might be the most wonderful person in all the world with the most talents anyone has ever seen. I want you to understand all of them are worse than his talents. You are my chubby fingered hand about to break a plate. Do you know how wonderful releasing that is? God didn't choose me to preach because he wants to put pressure on me feeling like I need to perform. He chose me to preach because he is kind and because he loves to use that which is easily brushed aside to work in power and that's why he chose you for whatever purpose he made you for. And futility. Remember this, that no matter what the enemy tries, he has zero ability to nullify the promises of God. They will find a way through. Let's stand together.
I know that there is a prayer and ministry team. I'd ask you guys to just be available. John, feel free to come up. Let's lead some ministry time. Thank you, Faith. Let's just turn our eyes to Jesus. He is so kind and he is so good. We honor you. Let your voice lead us. Some of us, I feel like God is wanting to just give us the beautiful, kind opportunity to get it right in our hearts who we want to fear. Things like this sometimes aren't just miraculously changed, although sometimes they are. And I feel like for some of you, God is just going to instantaneously start lifting off worries and pressures that you have felt to follow other people's voices. But for some of us, it's a journey. And it starts with just saying, I want to be different. (laughs) I want your voice to lead me. I want your voice to be so powerful to me that I would defy pharaohs and giants. Holy Spirit, I ask you in this room for an anointing to defy everything that is not of you. To stand in defiance of culture, of worldly wisdom, of even ungodly expectations, even if they come from family. But for us to be a people who so revere the voice of the Lord that we would follow you, not being obnoxious, right? This is not an excuse for us to just be really obnoxious people and blame it on God. To be a faith-filled people who will count the cost ourselves. See, sometimes as Christians, we hear the word defiance and we assume that other people count that cost. No, no, Uh, the cost of defiance is on ourselves. We take it because we so believe the voice of the Lord. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just lead men and women in this room, that courage would rise up, that there would be even your voice speaking in right now for destiny and for purpose. I feel like some of you have got grown disappointed in the promises of God. And so you believe that somehow the enemies managed to nullify them. It is not possible. If you look at world history, and you chart the nations where governments tried to nullify the promises of God by stamping out the existence of Christians. Look at where the fastest growing church Christian-wise is in the world and you will find every place where governments have said, we will stamp it out. Why? Because it is not possible for the enemy to nullify the promises of God. It's the same in history. It's the same in Israel. It was the same for you. He cannot nullify the promises that you carry in your life. Come Holy Spirit. Let your refreshing come in this room. Let fresh courage come in this room. Let relief come from those who are carrying pressure to perform. He's not asking you to be brilliant. He's asking you to be surrendered. There's a difference. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast served you. I hope that this sermon inspired you and encouraged you to follow the way of Jesus. Garden Church, we exist as a local church and we would love to resource you wherever you are. So if you're not part of our local community plugged into a house church, that's fine. 
We'd love for you to follow along on the journey. For more information on following the way of Jesus, being a disciple today, living naturally supernatural lifestyle, go to garden.church. Continue to listen along. God bless you.